All right, so if you have your Bible, um, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Um, this morning we're in another week in our study, and today we're coming to a really important passage in the letter. In some ways, the passage we're going to study this morning is like the high watermark of the letter to the Hebrews. It's, it, it, it's, when you read it, you may understand, you may get why I'm saying this. It's kind of, it feels like the passage that everything has been building toward in some ways. And, and, and so we're in the second half of chapter 10. And with it, ironically, we're coming to another warning passage. It's, it's kind of odd to say those two things back to back that this is the high watermark of the letter and it's a warning passage. But I think it's true. This is going to be the conclusion that he's drawing from all the things that he's been saying since chapter 5. Really, since the last few verses of chapter 4. You know how for the past couple of months, it's taken a while to work through all those chapters, how for the last couple of months we've been in this long, sustained argument, threefold argument, uh, in the letter, comparing Jesus to the Old Covenant. You know, specifically how Jesus, for example, is a greater high priest. That is, the him being a greater high priest than the Old Covenant priest, that's actually what started at the end of the last few verses of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. But not only that, how it talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and, and the, 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 the Old Covenant temple. What it always represented, it was always pointing forward to who Jesus is and what he came to do. It was the place where God met man. Jesus is, uh, is that in one person. And, and we've been talking about how in the last few chapters, how his sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself on the cross is greater than the rep- re- um, repetitive you know, sacrifices of the old covenant. Why has he been building that case for five chapters? to issue forth this admonition and to issue forth this warning to those who were tempted to walk away from the faith, to walk away from Christ and from the church. We've already looked at three different warning passages in the letter prior to this one, and that's why this is part four of the warning passages. And just to remind you, because we haven't seen a warning passage like this since chapter 6, there are five major warning passages in Hebrews. Um throughout the letter, so you, there, those are the five, and you can see right there, our passage for this morning is the fourth of the five. That's the passage we're going to think about today. There's one more after this one, and it's basically the whole chapter of chapter 12. But the warning we find here in chapter 10, aside from maybe the one we saw in chapter 6, is in some ways the strongest of all of them. And I say that not necessarily because of the language of the of the warning in chapter 10, the, not, not necessarily because the language is stronger than it was in chapter 6. I Really, I say it's the strongest of all of them because of where it falls in the letter. The mere fact that it's this warning in chapter 10 that, that comes after that long line of all that reasoning from chapter 4, end of 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and now 10 to show how Christ is better and Christ is worth persevering with he has poured all that he has into showing how 
from the Old Testament itself, how Jesus is better. And He is what it was always promising. He is what it was always pointing forward to. Uh, and Yeah, and, he, and so He's been so careful over these last few chapters. He's just been so careful for five chapters to convince, to persevere, uh, and not to walk away from Christ, those who were tempted to leave. Really, for five chapters, He's been doing that by trying so hard to show all the reasons to stay, all the reasons uh, in the new covenant to stay. But now he's going to switch gears to, to the other side of the coin, and that is the sober, the sober warnings and the sober consequences of leaving the faith. I've given you for five chapters all the reasons you should stay, but should you choose to leave, here are the consequences. And they're sober, and by sober I mean eternal. So this is a very important passage in the letter. So before we get into it, I want to read it together. Um, Hebrews 10, we're going to start in verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, yet a little while and, coming, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. And preserve their souls. Let's pray. 
Father, I ask that you would give us grace to hear your word and to hear, hear it rightly and hear, hear exactly what you're saying in these, in these words. We recognize this for what it is. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, necessary word. And it, and it, and it, is, our, it is our duty with you being the creator and us being the creature to come into submission under it, to believe what it tells us to believe, to do what it asks us to do and commands us to do. So I pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth here, give us hearts to embrace and love the truth, not merely to know it, but to love it and embrace it, to give us wills to obey what it calls us to do and to heed this warning, but to hear it as it is intended. Give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly. Give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can see how this isn't the easiest passage. Especially the warning there in verses 26 through 31. None of the warnings are easy to understand. I tried at the very first warning in chapter 2 to give you a framework in which to understand all these warnings. Remember the, how we made a reference back to the end of the book of Acts and the shipwreck? You remember that? Like where, where Paul was on a boat and the shipwreck was... Um, the, 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 there was a storm at sea and they thought the boat might sink. Well, God had already promised to Paul in a dream that nobody on the ship was going to die. Nobody was going to die. But then some of the sailors were uh, thinking about abandoning ship. And, and after, after he had received that promise, Paul saw they were about to abandon ship and he said, if, basically, if you jump, you'll die. He issued a warning. But he had already been promised that nobody would die. But see, the warning... If you jump, you'll die, kept them from jumping, kept them in the boat, which made God's promise come true. Nobody died. And that's kind of how the warnings work in Hebrews. Uh, because at face value, that's a helpful framework, because at face value, they're not easy to understand. And I think when we consider what this warning is saying, though, especially in light of what, we says, what he says before the warning and after the warning, it actually turns out to be a very encouraging passage, oddly enough. And so we need to hear this warning for what it says and with the force and the weight that the author of Hebrews and God through him is giving it. But I don't think at the same time we should leave in utter panic or despair over this. I don't think that's the intention at all. So here's how I want to divide up the passage to get our head around what we just read. In verses 19 through 25, I want to think about the admonitions that we read. There's three of them there. And it's the main exhortations that are the fruit of all that he's been saying. All that he's been saying for the past five chapters were building to this point into three, three admonitions. So we need to hear them. And that's verses 19 through 25. Then in verses 26 through 31, like we just said, we need to see the warning. We'll think carefully about it because at first glance, this, this warning is easy to misunderstand. You might think it's saying something that it's not. And then thirdly and finally, in verses 32 through the end of the chapter, we'll, we'll think about the encouragement that he gives them immediately on the heels of the warning. The whole thing is not meant to uh, send us into an anxious spiral, but to give us a fair reminder of the, of the seriousness of following Christ and to persevere. So that's how I want to divide it up. So let's, let's look first at the opening, opening verses and see the admonitions that he gives us. That's that the five, past five chapters have been building to. So the admonitions. Look again at how he starts there in the opening verses. Look at verses 19 through 21. 
if you look at them carefully, you can kind of see what he's doing here and his train of thought. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, I know we'll stop there, that's an incomplete sentence, but it's at that point that he's going to issue the first admonition. But look at what's going on in those verses. You might notice how what he says in those verses right there sound a lot like what we've been talking about for the past five chapters. It echoes a lot of the things we've been talking about. For example, look at verse 19. And you can see in verse 19 that it's sort of his summary of all he's already said showing how Jesus was a greater sacrifice. He's talking about we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's a greater sacrifice. That's, that's what he's been talking about for the whole last chapter. But then in verse 20, you can see how he's summarizing how Jesus is a great, greater temple. That's what he's been arguing uh, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, he's, by, by the way, he's been arguing. I don't know if I've been as clear as I wanted to be clear. I'll try to do it here. He's been arguing that Jesus is a greater temple than the old covenant temple for for two in two ways two ways one is he's argued that that jesus death and his resurrection has has finally once and for all time accomplished the final verdict of forgiveness in in the in not just in the earthly tabernacle or the earthly tent but in the very courtroom of heaven the old testament sacrifices in that temple were offered again and again and again because they never actually did anything so Jesus is a greater temple in the sense that what he did affected the courtroom of heaven itself. But, but there's a second way that he's a greater temple, and that is Jesus himself is a greater temple. His very person is a greater temple because he, he is the place forevermore where God met with man. He is, he, you know, he is Emmanuel, God with us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the tent was, uh, temple was a, was a place where God met with man. In the New Covenant, it's a person, right? That's why John says in John 1.14, and the Word, I don't have it here, and the Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. Dwelt, the, and the Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. That word dwelt there in the Greek is the same word elsewhere translated tabernacle. So you could almost say the Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. Why use that word? Because He is the, the person where God met with man. But look at verse 21. And you can see how he's summarizing what he said about Jesus being a greater priest. We have a great high priest over the house of God. All three of those things, greater priest, greater temple, greater sacrifices, those have been, those have been the theme of the past five chapters. And he, why, is he, why does he summarize those things in these first three verses? Because he's drawing up all of those things in one final summary, now to issue forth these three important admonitions. And the first one is there in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is an important point. This, this verse right here, this first admonition, is so very important to carry with you all, through, all the way through the rest of this passage. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that. This, when you come to the warning, don't pretend like he didn't say this. 
we, he's saying but in here, based on all that Christ has done, he has done, and we've, this is, you know that we've been saying this for months, he's done everything that is necessary for us to, to draw near to God and not just in, in sort of a, a weak and soft hope, but what he says here, in, in absolutely full assurance of faith. Full assurance. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit-inspired words to the author of Hebrews. Full assurance of faith. Why can we be so sure? He says we can draw near to God by faith now with absolute assurance, to use his words here, because we have our hearts sprinkled clean from, a, with, from an evil conscience. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is that a reference to? That word hearts sprinkled clean is important. Because it, and we'll see more why in just a second when we go back to an Old Testament passage. But suffice it now, what he's saying there, when he says our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, he's talking about the Holy Spirit drawing our hearts to faith in Christ. He, drawing our hearts to faith in Christ to receive the forgiveness that Christ has earned for us on the cross. In other words, why can you draw near with full, full assurance of faith? Because if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and I'm talking to you if you're doing that right now, you can draw near to God with absolute assurance because it was the Holy Spirit Himself who drew you to that faith. And your faith, your, in other words, your faith, your faith in Christ, it's not the the. the not like the first moment you believe that is that is when god's favor on you started that's not that didn't that's not where god's favor on you begins the moment you believe no your faith is the result of god's favor on you that's why you believed and and to hammer that truth home even more he talks about our bodies washed with pure water that's a reference to baptism not what baptism does because the water of baptism doesn't do anything to you. But he's talking about what baptism represents and what it symbolizes. It's a reminder here of what it represents. And it represents a lot of things. It represents Christ's blood washing your sins away. It represents you dying to your old life and being raised to new life. It represents, oddly enough, something we don't ever talk about. But in, in, in the Bible, water is often a symbol for God's judgment. Think the flood. Think Noah. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he, he compares those two things, the flood and baptism. And it's like the waters of baptism, when you go down, you come up, you go out, it's like you have, because of Jesus, you have come through the judgment of God safely. It represents a lot of things, but one thing that, the, the, that baptism represents is the fact, like I just said, that it's the Holy Spirit who brought us to faith. We see water symbolizing this, and we see those words about sprinkling. We see that in an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. See, that's that same language in Hebrews 10, 22. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. So, and you see the word sprinkle there, like, like in verse 22. So one of the things that water baptism symbolizes is this reality of the Holy Spirit of God giving us a new heart to trust in Christ. And so go back to the Hebrews. The first admonition 
the author gives us is to know these realities. And based on those realities, draw near to God, never doubting. Never doubting. But with, with absolutely full assurance in your heart, because Christ has paid for all your sins, like we saw last week, the unbelievable depth of, to, to use the, Christ has paid for your sins so fully that, like we saw last week in chapter 9, verse 2, we can no longer have any consciousness of our sin standing between us and God. But also because it was the Holy Spirit who drew us to faith to receive that for ourselves anyway. So every drop of your love for Christ and every drop of your trust in Him is itself the evidence of God's work in you. So don't ever doubt it. If He wasn't at work, you wouldn't care. Second admonition, though, in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast to it. For he who promised is faithful. Just as we can come to God through Christ with absolutely full assurance of His favor, we can and we're called to hold fast to it and to persevere in Christ in the same way. Full assurance of faith without wavering. Why should we do it without wavering? The reason he gives is because he who promised is faithful. God doesn't waver. God isn't, God isn't wavering on his commitment to us. And that's, more, that, that's quite important. And his provision of grace for our every need is, is always there. And so we can persevere in Christ because God is preserving us. That's the whole issue of this letter. That's why I said this is the high watermark. This is the high watermark. This is the whole issue of this letter. Some of them in that church he's writing to had begun, begun well, and, but were wavering. It's, it's like the, the parable of the sower that Jesus told. Some of them, the seed falls on the ground, and some of them start out really well, but, but the sun comes out and they wither. Some were beginning to wither. Some were get, beginning to waver. And so he reminds them here of God's faithfulness to them, and he urges them to persevere in faith and faithfulness, um, which will also set up the the basis for the warning to come in the next few verses. But then he gives them a third admonition. Verse 24. And let us, notice how each one begins with let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice what he's doing here. The two admonitions up to this point have had to do with you and you alone. You alone draw near to God. Nobody else can draw near to God for you. You alone do that. You alone hold fast to your confession. Just because my parents are holding fast to theirs doesn't, stand, doesn't mean that I'm automatically holding fast to mine. You alone have to hold fast. Uh, but then, with this third admonition, he takes the focus off of you and he turns it toward the rest of the church. Consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works. That's how we hold fast to our confession. Not just by realizing how faithful God is to me, but by us persevering ourselves in love and good works. And what do we need to do that? We need each other. We need the church. And notice exactly what the command entails. Not just, and, and let us stir one another up. It says, let us consider how. Let us consider. Let's consider how to stir one another up. Let, just dwell on that. It, in other words, that's saying it should be on my mind. It should be on my mind to, to encourage you in your faith. 
that should be a, a present uh, reality in, in my mind. I, that I don't just live for myself. I'll live for you too. I should, and it should be on my mind how to stir you up. And it should be on your mind to, to do the same for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is why we gather every Sunday. It's why we gather every Wednesday. It's why we gather in missional community groups every week. It's why we gather any other time we gather. So that we stir each other up to persevere in Christ and to follow hard after Him. And it should be on our minds. Let us consider consider that's a that's a mental thing should be in our minds to do that for each other and so here he's making clear that the christian life is not just about you and god it's not an individualistic thing in every way it's not just about you and god it's about us and god the christian life god isn't just saving you he's saving a people think about that Walking daily in Christ is not just about you having your quiet time every morning. No. It's about you laying down your life every day for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And them doing the same for you. So that, so that why? So that not only we just persevere in faith, but in the meantime, we grow together in the selfless love of Christ. How does he say in verse 25 that we fulfill all these admonitions? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You cannot, hear me, you cannot persevere in Christ-honoring faith apart from the church. Apart from the fellowship of the church. Apart from the encouragement of the church. Apart from the teaching of the church. Apart from the worship of the church. Why? Because you will, over time, devolve. You will over time devolve into a version of Christianity that is nowhere described in the Bible. Why does he emphasize both of these things? Why does he he emphasize pressing on personally, drawing near, pressing on, holding fast, but also stirring up one another and considering how to do that? Why does he emphasize both the, the individual side of it and the corporate church side of it? Because... Uh, it is both of those things that some were tempted to walk away from. Which is why he gives the warning in the next few verses. Let's look quickly at that warning. And I want us to think carefully about what he's saying here. Because this is one of the most troublesome warning passages for some. I'm just going to lay it out there. So let's think about it. The warning begins in verse 26. And incidentally, that is one of the most confusing and potentially worrisome verses to some look at verse 26 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins to which probably everyone in the room goes oh no because which one of us never sins deliberately you know And how many deliberate sins is the limit? Before there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. Was it the last deliberate sin I committed or is it the next one? Is is this how the author of this letter is leading us to think in this verse? Remember, I told you verse 22 is the verse that you should carry with you all the way through the passage. For a lot of people, that's exactly how they see this verse. 
And they'd just rather pretend this verse isn't here. <laughs> but that is hardly what he is saying when you see this verse. In light of everything else that he says, in light of what he said in verse 22, full assurance of faith. In light of everything else he says here, rather than just plucking this verse out and looking at it in isolation from everything else around it, what, what does he say in the verses that follow? In elaborating on what he means by this, not surprisingly, he makes a comparison to the Old Covenant. In verse 28, he, the Old Covenant says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's comparing whoever he's talking about in verse 26, he's comparing it in the Old Covenant to the one who has set aside the law of Moses. And he's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. And if you, and we don't have time now, but if you went back to Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7, you would find that he is describing a man who has utterly and totally abandoned the worship of God. And he is worshiping the sun and the moon instead of God. He's not, he's not describing a man who struggles daily with pride. He's, not just, he's talking about somebody who has totally and deliberately abandoned the worship of God to go worship the sun and the moon and the stars. Which is why, in his comparison, he now continues the comparison to now somebody in the New Covenant, that he does that in verse 29, but notice the drastic phrases he uses to describe this person in verse 29. Like he's talking about one who has spurned the Son of God spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, outraged the Spirit of grace. That is, that is describing a deliberate and complete turning away from the, the worship of Christ, just like in the Old Covenant. This is the deliberate sin talked about in verse 26. Walking away from Christ. Not, not like ongoing struggles with, with, with gossip or pride or the love of money seriously he's just gotten finished in the last chapter talking about which we looked at last week the unbelievable depth of our forgiveness in christ so how many rumors must you be guilty of spreading before the blood of christ runs out of forgiveness for your sins how many times could you be guilty of loving your money just a little too much before there's no longer any forgiveness for that and didn't he just say, like I said in verse 22, that we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith? That, that is a pipe dream. Full assurance of faith is a pipe dream if I have to live every moment of my life wondering if the next time I stumble, I have finally reached the end of God's patience and the atoning worth of Christ's blood. It is totally out of character with everything he's already said in this letter about the salvation we have in Christ. If that's what he means. But that's not what he means. Calvin put it this way. And yes, this is old language, but you're in college. God invites to daily reconciliation. Daily reconciliation. Those who abide in Christ. And they are daily washed by the blood of Christ. Their sins are daily expiated by His perpetual sacrifice. 
As salvation is not to be sought except in Him, there is no need to wonder that all those who willfully forsake Him are deprived of every hope of pardon. But Christ's sacrifice is efficacious to the godly even to death, though they often sin. Indeed, it retains ever its efficacy for this very reason, because they cannot be free from sin as long as they dwell in the flesh. The apostle, by whom he means whoever wrote Hebrews, then refers to those alone who wickedly forsake Christ and thus deprive themselves of the benefit of his death. But some also stumble in this warning over how it makes it sound initially like the person being talked about here was actually a believer who lost their salvation. But I don't think that's the case. In verse 26, he simply describes him as someone who received the knowledge of the truth. That, that, that doesn't necessarily imply being genuinely born again to eternal life. You've just been in a position where you heard the, the, and received the knowledge of the truth. And in verse 29, when it says he has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, I think it's interesting that he used the word sanctified instead of some other word because sanctified has a, a twofold meaning. It can mean, if you went to venture, you know this, it can mean, mean to be made holy and pure, but can also mean, be, it can also mean to be set apart for something. And, and, in this, and I think it's in that sense here that this, this person has been sanctified or set apart in some sense by some outward profession of faith, by some outward association with the church, uh, and in that sense, outwardly appearing to belong to Christ. doesn't mean he's inwardly born again. And we have seen in previous warning passages, again, this is the fourth of five. We've already seen three of these. Warning passages. That the warning passages don't imply that genuine believers can lose their salvation. But they identify those who never were. And they spur actual believers on to greater faith and greater obedience. And notice how he ends the warning passage in verse 30. Well, he ends at verse 31. Don't fall into the hands of the living God by walking away from Christ. But look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. That's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36, which again is talking about how God will judge the unbelievers among the people. But in, in verse 36, Deuteronomy 32, 36, where it says the Lord will judge his people here, in the Old Testament the word is a little different. The Lord will vindicate his people not judge his people to cast them out of his presence forever, but to vindicate them. You find a similar idea in Psalm 50, where in Psalm 50, verse 4, it says, He calls, God calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Sounds ominous. What does that judgment of his people look like in the very next verse? Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather my faithful ones. God will judge His people to vindicate them and bless them for their perseverance and faith to the end. But how do I know? How do I know if I'm going to be one of those that perseveres in faith to the end? Well, how do you respond to the warnings? How do you respond to the warnings? When you hear the warning, what does it do to you? Does it, does it make you fearful of turning away from Christ? Good. Good. That shows that you belong to Him. 
God himself said in Jeremiah 32, 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Those who don't have the work of the Spirit in their hearts are phased by these warnings, none whatsoever. If you don't want to be this guy, hallelujah. But look very, very quickly at the encouragement that he gives. That they will persevere. What does he do to ensure them that they, he believes they will persevere to the end? He reminds them of their past faithfulness. He says in verse 32 that they had already gone through some hard struggles with sufferings. And then in verses 33, in the first part of verse 34, he describes some of those things. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so, so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. That's far more than many of us have ever had to endure. They had already been faithful through all of those things. And he points out at the end of verse 34 that he sees in that evidence of God's work in them. Because he says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you had a better possession and an abiding one. They had already demonstrated their faith in Christ and promise in extreme circumstances, even losing everything they owned and doing it joyfully. Which is why he's confident. And he says the very last words of this hard passage, Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back. We're not those people. We're those who have faith and preserve their souls. God had already shown himself faithful in their lives, and they had already shown themselves faithful to him. Well, all I say in, in the end, and we're going to have to pack it up, these warnings in, in Hebrews, don't be, hear them for what they're saying. Don't water them down. But hear what he's saying, because when you hear what he's saying, these warnings are a gift of God to us in Scripture. Because they remind us of the importance of following hard after Jesus. And while they are true, that if we walk away from Christ, we are walking away from, from the only opportunity of salvation we have. We're not going to find it anywhere else, and we're not saved. They're also a gift for those who do know Christ, because it's fresh encouragement to stay faithful to Christ to the end. That's a beautiful thing. Let's pray.